As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello there. Thank you for tuning in. This is the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast with myself, Ali Maxwell, with Michael Cox and Tom Warville as well, both of The Athletic. On today's episode, Cristiano Ronaldo has re-signed with Manchester United, a cost of an initial 15 million euros and 8 million euros in add-ons, a two-year contract for Cristiano Ronaldo. Now, the story of the transfer itself is remarkable, but that's not up to us to tell you about. All of the detail can be found in a piece on the Athletic site titled Ronaldo's Return to Manchester United, How the Deal Was Done, and that's by Laurie Whitwell, by Adam Crafton, and a whole host of others as well. We are here purely to analyse the signing from a footballing perspective. Tom and Michael will fill us in on Ronaldo's likely role in this side, how he fits or not, and who stands to gain or lose something from the signing. Tom, it's been an interesting week or so for your own personal and working relationship with Cristiano Ronaldo because it's only a few days since you wrote and published a piece on The Athletic titled How Would Cristiano Ronaldo Fit In at Manchester City? Uh, I think that was best summed up by a commenter, Ender F, who said, This aged like milk. Ronaldo, stinking out your work in the last week. How are you getting on? Uh, good, very good. Sadly, uh, yeah, that article did curdle fairly quickly, but uh, I think there's still some some takeaways we can learn from it. Um, and yeah, it just shows you how fast football can move at times, which uh, is good for the fans, uh, but sometimes not good for us writers. My heart weeps for you, my friend. I think, as you say, we, we definitely can learn some things from that article and no doubt we will refer to it later on. Some of it will apply to us discussing Ronaldo and Manchester United. Uh, Michael, you've got a piece out first thing this morning as well and you're taking a look not only at Ronaldo and Manchester United but Messi and PSG as well. Always good to keep those two together, I think, just uh, for business purposes more than anything. Yeah, I watched the two games on uh, Sunday involving their sides. Uh, obviously, Manchester United playing Wolves without Ronaldo. PSG playing way at Rem. Uh, well, mainly without Messi. Came on about 25 minutes to go. I just thought it was interesting because it's probably the last matches we'll see of those sides before they become a fixture in the team. And uh, on the basis of their performances, you wouldn't really say that what they're crying out for is another superstar attacker, either of them. Um, so it's quite a funny... Um, 
not even a juxtaposition really because I think it's the same kind of situation for both clubs but uh, yeah I think I think both players will probably reinforce the strengths of those clubs rather than addressing the weaknesses they have which mm. isn't necessarily the best approach to squad building but from our perspective I think it if anything make, it makes things a little bit more interesting tactically yeah for sure I mean We've spoken about the type of player that Messi is now. You've written about his potential fit with PSG. When it comes to Cristiano Ronaldo, we did a, a whole episode actually at the end of last year entitled What Kind of Player is 2020 Cristiano Ronaldo? Because more than most, he's had some pretty intense and very impressive sort of stylistic changes throughout his career in order to stay and perform at the absolute top level the highest level perhaps that we've ever seen for someone in his position uh, let's start today's pod with a, a sort of mini update on that section what kind of player Michael is 2021 Cristiano Ronaldo after his three years at Juventus well I don't think he's quite the player that some people think he is I think we all expected him to become just a pure goal scorer a pure number nine that certainly seemed to be what he was becoming by the end of his time at Real Madrid I think if you're going to give him a position, you would call him a centre-forward. That is fair. But, I mean, when we did that article, when you looked at the numbers, actually there was a slight rise in other metrics. I mean, he was touching the ball a little bit more. He was dribbling past players a little bit more. Obviously not on the level of, you know, Ronaldo of 10 years ago. But he's not quite a, uh, you know, Pippo and Zaggy figure. I think he has wanted to get involved in the play. And actually, I think sometimes that cause the event is a bit of a problem because I don't think he was just fulfilling one role. I think he wanted to be constantly involved and I think that wasn't necessarily in keeping with what his managers always wanted of him. Um, but maybe that's something we can discuss a little bit later. Are we talking moving away from being a pure goal scorer to the extreme of, for example, Harry Kane over the last two years? Are we talking about what is often referred to as a, a nine and a half or are we not quite there? Is it a, a nine and a quarter? No, I don't think we're there at all. I mean, Kane ended the Premier League season uh, last time out as both the top goalscorer and the top assister. Uh, Ronaldo was the top goalscorer in Syria. I think I'm right in saying he only got two assists. So uh, for me, it's it's a slightly different thing because I'm not sure that what he was doing was always to the benefit of the team. It felt to me almost like he just, for his own personal um, you know, feeling comfortable. He just wanted to be touching the ball. He wanted to be involved in play. And I'm not sure that he's he's really developed into a player who is comfortable in those deeper positions. He just he just seemed to drift around a lot and, and yeah, not be in his position and, and sometimes mean that meant that the team didn't really have that much shape, that much structure going forward. So yeah, it's um whether this is a, a positive thing or not, I, I think it's it's difficult to say, but he's certainly not quite the pure number nine that he was four years ago in his last season at Real Madrid. I think the other issue that we have with with looking at how Ronaldo's evolved in the last couple of years is just the sheer amount of manager turnover at Juve, which means that you know you look at his numbers from last season under Perlo um, and contrast them to, to the season prior when Perlo wasn't there, and, and and it's hard to untangle how much of of the the kind of changes in his in his style are due to. You know him changing as a player, or just him being forced to play in a different tactical system. Mm. Um, I mean, looking at the numbers um, on Smarter Scout from that Man City article, and we can see that he's more prone to kind of passing from deeper, a la uh, Harry Kane, a little bit. Definitely not to the same same level. Um, but he links played less, although he does kind of float out to the wings, and he does like to dribble more. And so, how much of that is, like I said, you know him 
having to play a new role in a system which Perlo's designed, or is it are these kind of like lasting changes in how he will play the game? Um, and I think that it's probably a bit of the latter, and it probably when it comes to Manchester United, his role will be you know different uh, even more. Top goal scorer in Serie A in his final season at Juventus. Uh, what can you tell me about how his goals come about? How does Ronaldo score goals in, in 2021? Because as discussed, he is over the course of his career, scored goals in, in pretty much every single possible way. How does he do it now? Is it is it pure poaching? Can he still create his own shot? Is he still dribbling up there with the best of them and getting good shots off? How does he score his goals? Well, as with Ronaldo, uh, his goal total is always slightly inflated by the number of penalties he's scoring as well. So that's one thing to to take into account. Six last season, which for him is is fairly low. I mean, he's had some seasons where he scored 12 from the spot in uh, in that you know famous 46 goal season in 2011-2012 but i mean there's a lot of a lot with ronaldo i guess is like the shooting from range um which is kind of still remains a part of his game the quality of those efforts is kind of questionable although the kind of average quality of his shots when we look at fb ref actually jumped up last season versus the season before so i think what you'll see a lot with ronaldo from his goal scoring, at least last season, is getting into the box a lot. Um, he is trying to score with his head, and that's something that Michael and myself kind of covered off in the kind of evolution of Ronaldo piece. That this is a kind of potentially a larger part of his game. Um, but those kind of cutting in runs. I mean, for a striker, he did pick it up, pick up a lot of the ball in kind of wider positions and look to drive inside. So there's there's elements of kind of Ronaldo of, of yesteryear at Manchester United, which. Um, kind of remain a little bit and how much we'll see those again in the Premier League uh, is is up for up for debate but very much someone who is a, a classic number nine in the sense that he's going to try and get most of his goals uh, in the penalty box and be kind of sniffing around there so I think that is that's something to definitely look out for but he still has that kind of penchant for a, a questionable long shot at times when there's probably a pass on as well. Michael, we're in an era now where some of the very top managers and top teams have strikers, central strikers, whose qualities without the ball, whose qualities out of possession when it comes to pressing and such like, are almost put on the same pedestal as their pure goal-scoring numbers. Uh, Ronaldo and Messi, perhaps in order to extend their careers at the very top level and focus on what they do best with the ball, um, not necessarily excelling when the opposition have it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, the, the statistics show this quite nicely. I mean, uh, if you look at FBREF, which we reference quite a lot using the StatsBomb data, um, that's got a, a very nice uh, comparison of, of every individual compared to players in a similar position across the other big five leagues uh, over the last year. And that suggests that Ronaldo is in the bottom 1% in terms of pressuring opponents. Um, I think it's worth saying that Messi is there as well. Um Ronaldo's st- uh, statistics and tackles aren't particularly much more impressive. Messi actually is mid-range in that. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's obvious when watching them, I think both of them, that they they just don't have the energy really to, to participate uh, in, in regaining the ball much. I think Messi used to be very good at that, but he now conserves himself for the, um, the attacking phase of play. Yeah, it's the same for Ronaldo. And I think, you know, it's not a coincidence that Ronaldo has played in a lot of games over the last five, six years where his side really have been on, on the back foot. They've been dominated. They haven't really been able to dictate the game, but they have won by virtue of superior finishing. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that really is what he brings. He's not going to contribute much without the ball. I think maybe there's an argument that 
you know, he clearly wasn't happy towards his, the end of his time at Juventus and maybe that affected his work rate. And I think coming back to Manchester United, maybe he'll be, you know, keen to prove the doubt is wrong, keen to participate a little bit more than he has done without possession. But yeah, certainly it's not um, it's not on the level of, you know, if you play Rashford or Greenwood or I'd say even Cavani up front. I mean, I, th- I think mm. Cavani for his age works really hard without the ball. Um, you're not going to get that from Ronaldo. We're going to talk about his his tactical fit within this United side in just a second. I just want to sort of tie up his time at Juventus uh, because you hear a lot of takes, or at least if you spend enough time on Twitter, which I do, you see a lot of takes about Ronaldo having failed at Juventus or Juventus having failed Ronaldo over the last few years. And it's easy to get a sense of that transfer did not pay off either. Juventus didn't get what they wanted from Ronaldo or equally um, that that Juventus's chopping and changing of managers hindered them to the point of not getting the best out of him, uh, not necessarily uh, down to his own shortcomings. Michael, could you take a slightly more nuanced look and and tell me how you look back at his three years there? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, his goal scoring record is very good. I appreciate there's the point about penalties that Tom said earlier, but he's, he's still scored 101 goals in 134 games. I think for any other player, we would say that is sensational. We know that he was brought in to win the Champions League. We know that he was brought in to win the Champions League really with those kind of incredible individual displays. And he threatened to do it. I mean, I was in Turin when Juventus played Atletico in 2018-19. They were 2 no down from the first leg. Ronaldo scored a hat-trick, completely transformed the tie on his own. Juventus then lost in, in the next round in the quarterfinal against Ajax. And Ajax obviously did not have the superstar of Ronaldo, but they were a very, very well-drilled side. And I think that was the first sign, really, that there was a big contrast now between Juventus and and the other top sides in Europe. Juventus, the previous seasons, hadn't had that kind of attacking superstar. They'd had, OK, Higuain cost a lot, but I think really Mandzukic is being the main man in their Champions League runs, and he was very tactically effective. Ronaldo, I, I think, did cause them some tactical issues. I think to a certain extent he wants to do his own thing. I don't think it helped him that he had three managers in three years there. Um, he had Allegri and then Sarri and then Pirlo. They all had very different ideas of, of what they wanted to do. Um, whether that is a cause of his woes or, you know, the, the constant change in manager, maybe it being a symptom of his underperformance, I think that's up for debate. But I think, to be honest, Juventus have been not particularly well managed over the last three or four years in general. Um, I think there's been some iffy transfer signings, like I say, after a period of stability under first Conte and then Allegri, to have three managers in three years is is quite... I think it's difficult to maintain much cohesion. And I I also think, one last point, Juventus traditionally is not really a club for superstars. I mean, I remember in the mid-90s there, you know, when Juventus were probably the the best club in Europe. Ronaldo, the original Ronaldo, the Brazilian Ronaldo, was up for sale. And uh, I can't remember who it was at Juventus, one of the one of the hierarchy basically said, we're not going to attempt to sign him because Juventus isn't a club for players like that. You know, yeah. that's that's what Inter and Milan and Real Madrid are all about. Juventus is more a kind of, almost a workers' club. I mean, it literally is a workers' club when you look at the, you know, the foundation of it and, and everything. But it's, you know, it's, it's, I'd say in a way, a little bit like Manchester United in the sense that it's about squad players mucking in and getting the job done. And uh, I think when you look at Manchester United's record of signing absolute superstars, you know, I'm thinking Varane, uh, Di Maria, Paul Pogba hasn't always been effective. You know, I'm not sure that those clubs are necessarily geared towards the real superstars. So in a way, he's going between two two similar clubs. 
But uh, I, I think he'll obviously feel a little bit more home at Manchester United. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. If he had three managers in three years, all with a very different tactical identity, different ideas of how they wanted their team to play. Let's have a quick refresher on this Manchester United side under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. What's their tactical identity, Michael? What do they look to achieve with and without the ball? And how does Ronaldo fit into that team? Well, I mean, if you, if you look at the Wolves' performance of the weekend, I mean, they were completely outplayed Manchester United, really. I think Wolves should have been out of sight, really, before Manchester United scored a very good uh, winner through Mason Greenwood. I mean, they just don't have any real cohesion in midfield. Um, I think that's a bit of an issue. The squad is overloaded on attackers. Um, and Ronaldo, I think, exacerbates that problem, really. They've got too many players, in my opinion, to fit into the, the front three slots. And I also think, weirdly, the signing of Ronaldo actually is going to cause problems with Paul Pogba as well, because Pogba was excellent in the first two games of the season playing from the left. We know that Solskjaer doesn't really like him as one of those two central midfielders, but he played there at the weekend because, in part because McTominay was out. Um, and it was the same old problems with Pogba. He played a couple of wonderful passes in behind, but his positional discipline is, is really not there. That exposed Fred, who I think was as bad as I've ever seen him, having looked quite good on the opening day of the season against Leeds. And the fact that Ronaldo's come in and will obviously demand to play most matches means there's one less of those attacking slots, if you like, for Pogba. So we're going to see him more in the centre of midfield. So we know that Manchester United needed a central midfielder and not another attacker. And so they've got the wrong type of player. But actually getting the wrong type of player has made the situation even worse. They're going to surely be even more exposed in central midfield now. So, I, like I say, I, I don't think he really solves the issues. I think he, he reinforces their characteristics. This is sounding very negative, so I think it's also worth saying... I still think he's Manchester United's best attacking player. I mean, I think he, I think he scores goals. I think Greenwood is is developing into a wonderful player, um, but hasn't yet shown the consistency of Ronaldo. Sancho, if he reproduces his numbers at Dortmund, then he's their best attacking player. So you know, I think Ronaldo is going to be the player they base their attack around, probably with some justification. But uh, yeah, I mean, we know that it's not a signing really for footballing reasons. I mean, Manchester United were not after a centre forward. They, you know, they signed him really to, to reinforce the history of Ronaldo at the club. And of course, despite Manchester City, who very much did need him. Yeah, I think that's that's very much the case. And it is, for me, it, it's interesting that it's going to have to be Ronaldo as a centre-forward, really, because he's not really played much as a winger. And if Manu were playing so on the break, then it, you know, with Rashford, with Sancho, with Greenwood, it doesn't really make sense to to cut one of those guys out for someone who's arguably probably a bit slower now and less able to make more of those uh, high-intense sprints. 
but then again, Ronaldo does look after himself so well that that might be the case. But um, I'm always interested, of course, from kind of a squad management point of view, and it feels like Anthony Martial's stock is dropping off more week on week on week, and it it just feels like I mean, this is a pod about Ronaldo, but someone is going to get a good deal for Martial at some point who is going to get a few minutes now that Ronaldo's there and he you know he could be the next guy to do a kind of do a Lukaku if that's the thing you know go away he's still a good player he's a very good age he's still only 25 um kind of add to his game and probably you know go go away from the league and come back again I really think that he could be a, a candidate to do that so yeah I agree a lot with Michael that balance is the key thing here and I think that Ronaldo takes more away than he actually adds uh, mm. to this overall squad but um, when he scores 20 goals by the end of the season we'll be looking very silly with that take most likely well no one has scored 20 league goals for Manchester United since Van Persie in the 12-13 season so if he can get above that tally then at the very least he, w- he will have ended that spell but of course we don't just look at goal scoring numbers we look at what the team structure is overall and and how much they fit into that. And I just find it interesting, Michael, because you've talked about how with a a lack of mobility out of possession uh, and United not being known as a team that press with particular intensity in in the opposition's defensive third anyway, could we see a United side that soaks up pressure, that, that, that allows teams, almost encourages teams to progress the ball into their half and then looks to break in transition because there's certainly an image in my head of Fernandez starting a counter-attack Rashford and Sancho attacking from wide areas Ronaldo through the middle uh, of course Ronaldo was involved in one of the most famous counter-attacking goals in English football history against Arsenal in his first spell at Manchester United and it's hard not to get quite excited about that prospect yeah I'd be interested to see how much he's a threat on the counter-attack I don't think Juventus particularly played to well, whether it wasn't playing to his strengths or whether that's not his strengths anymore, I, I don't know. But I, I felt their build-up play was was somewhat more patient, particularly under Sarri, of course. Um, but yeah, that has been... I mean, they've been pretty good in big games, Manchester United, since Solskjaer took over. I think tactically they've been generally very well drilled. At times they've played almost without a conventional striker and done that very well. So um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they do in those big games, I think. I don't think there's any doubt that Ronaldo against the weaker teams can hang around near the penalty box and score probably close to 20 goals, I, I would expect. But it's those big games I'd be, I'd be concerned about. You know, I, I just think the, the tactical weaknesses that he brings is, is going to be an issue when you look at the other sides in the Premier League and how they use their centre-forward. I mean, look at I thought Firmino did a really good job for Liverpool um, at the weekend before he went off injured. He's the classic player who gets involved. I think, it, you know, we mentioned the pressure stats earlier. I think he's in term, he's the, the top 12% in terms of pressuring the opposition, which isn't a surprise. Um, and you can say the same, really, for the other strikers at, at big clubs. Just feels like United will have a bit of a passenger for those games. And, I mean, I think of Ronaldo... I think of so many different things over the last 15 years or so, but I think of towering headed goals and elite ability to score headed goals. Uh, if that is still very much something he has in his locker, which I think it is, uh, can United make the most of that? Do they are, are they a side, Tom, that creates good chances from crossing positions? Do they look to cross a lot? Do they have the players in their team to get the best out of that? You know, their wide forwards are not necessarily crossing wingers, are they? Are they? But I suppose in, in Luke Shaw and 
maybe in Bruno Fernandes bending in crosses from from the inside channel. There's a chance that that could be quite a, a, a good area, a good avenue of attack for them. Aaron Wambasaka as well. It's something that uh, our colleague Laurie Whitwell was was looking into towards the end of last season. I think about the improvement of Wambasaka's crossing from wide positions. So again, it's another kind of avenue to attack, and I just think. For games such as the one against Wolves, where Man U just struggled so much to break down that block, and they were just trying to do the kind of, you know, the the hail mary and behind for for a run, try and connect a really difficult pass. That is probably a fairly decent plan B. Um, so yeah, I think that that could be useful. But then again, you don't want to be too one dimensional in, in attack, and I'm not saying that United will be, but you don't want it to be a case of kind of the Arsenal with Kieran Tierney approach, where the only avenue you have is down the left, cross in. Uh, and a name for the guy who's going to be double and triple teamed by the time the ball gets into the box. But um, yeah, we we will see a Ronaldo ahead of goal at some point this season, I can imagine, uh, in a Manchester United shirt. I think that's a safe bet. And I think it raises an interesting question about Mason Greenwood, but because presumably, as much as they are selling Dan James, we believe, to Leeds United, as much as Anthony Martial is, has fallen pretty far out of favour, it's hard not to see Greenwood suffering in terms of minutes on the pitch certainly through the middle uh, and yet so far this season what we've seen is Mason Greenwood's exceptional finishing ability helping pick up points for Manchester United so you know how do you judge this one from a Greenwood perspective he's still so young and I suppose the argument would be that just having Ronaldo around for Greenwood to learn off probably can't be a bad thing on that front. Yeah I, I kind of see that I, I think I think he probably will be quite useful in training, but I do think players improve by playing games. So that would be a slight concern for me. My my only caveat to that is I think sometimes players can be overplayed, you know, when they're... He's still very young. He's still a teenager at Greenwood. And I think, you know, there was a thing about Rashford as well that that people said Mourinho wasn't using Rashford enough when he was there. But when you look at the minutes, he, he started about half the games and came off the bench in about half the games. I think that probably is the right balance for a player like that. So... I think there's been some examples in English football over the years. I think Michael Owen, for example, where players have they've been overplayed and their career has suffered because of that. So, you know, maybe maybe that will be a little bit useful. But yeah, you, you would be slightly concerned. The, the one thing to say is Greenwood, I think, can play. It looks like he can play from the left, from the right and through the middle pretty much with the same level of effectiveness. And that's going to be very useful. Obviously, Sancho's versatile as well. Um, so I'm sure they will get minutes here and there. But... Yeah, there does seem to be uh, one too many attacking player, at least, for those roles. I think they were pretty much sorted already. I mean, the role that Cavani had, where he would start half the games and be a plan B in the other games, that was pretty much perfect. I think Ronaldo, in a way, is an upgrade on Cavani, but such a a big figure that he almost demands to play. And I think that is not ideal. At the time of recording... The squad number situation is is somehow still a little bit up in the air. Cavani has the number seven at the moment. I mean, Michael, we'll find out either way, probably in the hours after we finish recording. But, you know, aside from the fascinating topic of um, elite athletes branding, uh, he shouldn't be allowed number seven anyway, should he, Ronaldo, based on the unwritten rules of squad numbering? Why? On the basis that he's not a number seven anymore? Well, you tell me. Uh, yeah, I'd go along with that. I mean, his first campaign at Real Madrid, he got there and Raul was there, so he took number nine, um, which, of course, another Ronaldo had previously worn. He's, yeah, he's more of a number nine than a number seven these days, isn't he? But, mm. yeah, there's been some interesting chopping and changing going on with the shirt numbers at Manchester United. I mean, 
Uh, Martial was was number nine, wasn't he? Until uh, Ibrahimovic came on, came in, he got bumped up to eleven. So I quite like the fact players do care about these things. I, I was fearful that by now everyone would just have their own kind of brand shirt number, you know, and you know, like twenty seven or something, just stick to it throughout their career. But they do seem to want one to eleven numbers, most of them anyway. So yeah, quite like that. But I think he's going to be twenty eight, isn't he? He's going to be his first, or probably going to be his. Uh, his first number at Sporting Lisbon, which is essentially what Messi's done in taking the number 30 at mm. Barcelona, which I must say, uh, sorry, at PSG, which I must say did look really weird. Just to not see him wearing number 10 really didn't look right. Would it be fair to say, while we're on the topic of squad numbers, that your favourite moment of the new season was Burnley naming their starting 11 and adhering to the squad numbers 1 to 11? Because that it felt like that would never happen again in the Premier League. Yeah, I mean, first time in over 20 years. Um, I mean, if, if we were going to put any money on it, I think we all would have bet on on Sean Dyche and Burnley. But it's great. And they were all in uh, they were in the traditional English positions for the numbers as well. I mean, like the, the European model is to have six as a, a central midfielder, whereas in England it's uh, six at centre-back. Again, Dyche was always going to be the old school English way for that. So, yeah, it's quite a nice touch. But they've signed... Um, uh, Corne, haven't they, to be uh, mm. the left left winger, I suppose, and uh, that will no doubt ruin the uh, the nice pat. Great to have a Maxwell in the Premier League, I think. <laughs> uh, Tom, we talk a lot with you about recruitment strategies. It's something that you have a, a really keen eye on uh, across all levels of football, but but you know certainly at the very very top level. One of the strategies is to focus on improving the weakest areas of a squad or a starting eleven, rather than focusing on, on just trying to get the best players available. I guess to raise the floor of the team, as it's often described, rather than trying to always raise the ceiling of a team. This does not really fit that bill, does it, for Manchester United? As discussed, everyone knows that raising the floor of this United side would have seen a focus on a different position at the base of midfield. Yeah, I think you look at that Wolves game this weekend and, I mean, it, it's such a harsh way to assess the problems of Man U because it's Adama Traore but the way he was just I mean he and he's one of only a few if the only one who can actually kind of barrage and run through a team as he does but you really saw the weaknesses of Fred that a more physical um, imposing defensive midfielder would have maybe been able to give Man U a bit more of a stranglehold on that game so yeah, I think that the issue consistently with Man U is how do you get that, that two in midfield right? I mean, they've obviously got a wealth of attacking options. The back line is fairly set. You've got decent depth that, uh, you know, more on the left side and it's at the back than at right back, but it's still not too much of a problem. But it's more just how do you balance that two in midfield? And Scott McTominay is kind of a, a runner and an okay passer, but I don't think they have that kind of destroyer figure who can really set the tempo for games and, and kind of control things which at times they do really need. So, yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, it just feels like that is a, a big position that they need. And it means that the next summer, you know, you're probably seeing Man U go for the likes of, of Erling Haaland or Dominic Calvert Lewin, I think, is a, a kind of younger version of this, of a kind of more penalty box focused Ronaldo. Um, how do you also find the money as well then for a 50, 60, 70 million Declan Rice type or, or a Wilfred Ndidi or something like that, which arguably this team is is crying out for even more. Um, mm. And I think that, you know, if they don't get that right, there's probably a, a ceiling on their ability to to kind of finish high up the table. Um, probably will limit their chances of, of being title winners, really. 
Michael, if you were in charge of Manchester United, I think you'd probably leave the transfers to, to someone else. It's not something that you spend a huge amount of time thinking about. But if you had to be in charge of United's transfers in the next, what are we, probably 12 hours until the transfer window closes, it, it seems like to put together a more joined up team on the pitch and assuming that Ronaldo will be United's starting number nine in the majority of games, you'd be looking to essentially trade Pogba because of his awkward fit in the team for, let's say, a, a Wilfred Ndidi, a destroyer type. Is that a fair summation of, of where you're at to, in terms of how you would try and make this United team even better as a collective? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that. But I think it's also worth pointing out, you look at the teams that have won the title over the last few years and they don't have top-class fits in every position. You know, it's rare you get a team that has doesn't have at least one weakness in their starting eleven. I actually think the current Chelsea team is possibly an exception. I think they're just excellent all over the pitch. But usually you do have some kind of weakness and it's the job of the manager really to to formulate an approach to almost hide those weaknesses. And I think to a certain extent Solskjaer had seemed to move towards a system that made sense with Pogba as one of the side midfielders and, and two proper holders there. And like I said, I don't think that's going to be so possible. So yeah, I, I think it's a bit of a an odd balance to the side. Um, you'd probably say Pogba and Ronaldo are the two players who cause some kind of problem. And they're the two players who I think have been signed really, not necessarily because it's what Manchester United need, but because they've got some kind of history at the club. And therefore, it's nice to bring them back. And of course, you can say the same about the manager as well. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, we, we discuss football from a purely tactical perspective or almost purely tactical perspective on this podcast. But the reality is that a lot of players, a lot of the big players now, do seem to be signed despite their tactical fit as much as because of it. Yeah, I think I'd add Bruno Fernandes to that group as well, just because obviously he has clear talents and ability and, and his numbers speak for themselves. But he does force you to play a certain way where, you know, a 4-3-3 for Manchester United is probably not on the table because Fernandes needs a lot of the ball and, and kind of has to play as a number 10, really. So, yeah, I think, I think very much so. It's for, for United, how do you obviously find a clear tactical fit for most of those players, which, um, you know, exposes their strengths and hides their weaknesses. And I think it's it's very tough to do. And arguably, a Ronaldo, Pogba, Fernandes trio is one of the hardest three to solve without, you know, dropping one to the bench um, or having a team which is wildly unbalanced at the back. And Tom, if you were Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and his set-piece coach, Eric Ramsey, who we spoke about last week, and you were thinking about direct free kicks... How would that conversation go with Cristiano, who, uh, who'd who love to take any free kick from pretty much any position? How would you approach that one with Bruno Fernandes, uh, a, a pretty high-quality occupant uh, of that responsibility at the moment? I mean, I'd probably try and get both to stop doing direct free kicks at anywhere beyond 25 yards out, um, which... I think it would be quite a tough conversation for me to have on multiple levels. You don't speak but, Portuguese so, for a start. I don't speak Portuguese for a start. Um, and I mean, I'd be I'd be armed with my clips of Ronaldo skying footballs over the bar, which uh, I don't think would build our relationship too much. Um, but I mean, for Eric Ramsey, uh, my new set piece coach, as you mentioned there, Ali, it's actually such a, a good option to have another player in the box, not just Harry Maguire, who is usually the key target for for you know an in-swinging ball, but another player that you can look to isolate opponents with and draw attention to. And it's probably quite rare that teams have two 
very very strong headers of the ball in those in those situations to the level of of Maguire uh, and and Ronaldo. Um, I think Everton with Dominic Calvert-Lewin and perhaps Yerry Mina just because of his height is another another example. So um, yeah, I, I'd rather see and you know fair play to Eric Ramsey if you can pull this off. But Man you getting more creative free kicks, lowering their count of, of direct free kicks in certain situations, um, and just trying to make the most from those from those you know balls into the box because they now have two elite headers of the ball let's say uh, I can't believe him say that about Harry Maguire but I guess that's that's probably what it is I mean on direct free kicks at Rashford I think his record is absolutely awful I mean I remember looking up the stats a couple of years ago uh, I've got a theory that the worst thing that can happen if you're a, a team is for your player to score like a legendary free kick <laughs> because it just seems to tide them over for years before people work out they're not that good I'm sure Rashford had I, it was about a year ago I looked up the stats, but I'm sure he'd, he'd shot from about 45 free kicks before, you know, since he'd last scored. Or maybe it was one in 45, which I think was against Cardiff in Solskjaer's first game, which is going back mm-hmm. a couple of years now. Um, He's got yeah, one he, in the in the cup against Chelsea, certainly. I'm not sure whether that was before or after that. So, so you, that, might have, you may have only been looking at Premier League stats, but that, that's definitely the, the eye-catching one, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that was incredible. Like, the movement on the ball, I don't know what is happening there. But I also <laughs> don't really think Rashford knows what is happening uh, and can't really replicate it. But, I mean, some of his attempts are just, just absolutely terrible. I mean, this, it's one of the areas, surely, Tom, where stats is... It, it's quite easy to make a case for not shooting from certain positions from stats, right? You've got it's a closed skill. You've got all the information there. There's a variable that you don't have in penalties, so you can say, "Well, shoot from there, but don't shoot from there." I mean, sometimes teams just seem to completely waste these pretty good situations. Yeah, hundred percent, and that's why I probably try and advocate for more to to you know put the ball in the box rather than shoot. Um, it's a piece of analysis I did during the Euros actually, which never saw the light of day. But now we're mentioning it on this podcast, I'm probably going to have to have to finish it but I was looking at kind of skill from from direct free kicks so which players are kind of um, based on the distance of how far away they're, they're trying to score from are they kind of better than the average free kick taker and I think from from looking Ronaldo was like wildly below average because of how often he's looking to shoot from really really far out I mean looking at the kind of distribution of all of his, all of his attempts I think there's nearly as many from 30 yards or more as there are closer in, which obviously is a lot harder to score from. Um, and it's a similar thing with Dimitri Payet as well, where he you know, scored a couple of wonder free kicks at, at West Ham, but you look at his numbers since and he's he's not come anywhere near, um, or at least he's not really scored that many. And then when you look at the attempts kind of and how many you'd expect him to score given the distance and what we know a little bit about the fact that he's actually scored a couple before and that probably means he's got some level of skill there. Um, he, again, is is just below average. And perhaps it's just been... Uh, our perception of how good he is is influenced by that kind of one or two that are perhaps a little bit fluky. Um, but if, if United really want a free kick taker, uh, I think you can't really go far... Uh, too far away from, from James Ward-Prowse, who I think by my model was the best in Europe at the time when I was running it in the summer. Um, and he obviously didn't go to the Euros... Uh, or maybe got drafted in last minute, but obviously didn't feature. So um, yeah, we can perhaps do a, a whole pod on direct free kicks and and try and um, protest against them. Well, pieces of Warville analysis that never saw the light of day is absolutely something I would sign up for. I mean, um, I, I hope this doesn't happen. But if if 
if Tom was to tragically die, do you think we'd re-release them like the, the un the uncut thing, and there'd be a big controversy? People saying, "Oh, he didn't want those to see the light of day." But <laughs> yeah, Tom, well, let us. It, you should probably let us know now. Yeah, give in- us your consent to do that, Tom. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven U.S. based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Why don't we talk about a piece of Wolven analysis that did see the light of day, even though it was, in the end, completely superfluous, because Cristiano Ronaldo did not sign for Manchester City, he signed for Manchester United. Tom, how different would his role at Man City would have been versus his role at Manchester United? Would he have been a better fit for that team? Yeah, that was the main kind of question we were, we were looking to answer in the piece, really, myself and Sam Lee. Um, and we we kind of looked at a few approaches. I mean, I looked at the stylistic ways that they've changed. And obviously, Sam, in recent weeks, has looked a lot at, I guess, how Ferran Torres is featured up front for Man City. Uh, Torres and, and Ronaldo, fairly you know different profiles, really. But some of Torres' movement has been fantastic. And that's the kind of stuff that you maybe hope to see Ronaldo replicate. But... Um, one approach we did do was was work with a, a Catalan data analyst called Paul Bellatbo. Um and I mean his work mainly looked at um, the different types of passes that a player makes. Uh, obviously, specifically Ronaldo in this case, but also those made by City and those made by by Harry Kane as well. And it's somewhat I think we spoke about on this pod in the past, and I've, I've definitely written about on the site around clustering passes into different types um, and then looking at kind of the the vocabulary. Um, of different players and the, the different types of passes they use. And with Ronaldo uh, and with Kane, there were some similarities, but a lot of Kane's kind of deeper passes into the box. Um, you know, he does that far more often than Ronaldo and receives uh, a kind of slightly differently as well. So if you think that Man City were gearing up to build around Kane, if you then look at how similar Kane and Ronaldo are, it's not a bad way of kind of thinking, okay, so if they were going to build around this player, can they do it with this player I- I- instead? Um and I think there was some level of similarity. I mean, there's not that the passing range, but Ronaldo was looking to drop a bit deeper and, and float into wide positions. And I think there's probably elements of his game on the ball and build-up, which of course would be useful. But I mean, Man City have not played without with a recognised striker for, I don't know, nine, 18 months at this point. Um, and they're able to, as a kind of 10-man machine, ignoring the centre-forward or that, that role, create chances and get the ball into the box so I think just being able to plonk a Ronaldo or a Kane in there they maybe tweak the dynamics a little bit about how they move the ball around but I just think that their system is kind of tailor-made for just someone to be that full stop at the end to put the ball in the back of the net and that player would have been Ronaldo and I think it would have worked pretty well um, truth be told. Well, I'd like to take back everything I said. That is exceptional analysis that I'm pleased saw the light of day. (laughs) Michael, did you have any thoughts on the matter? I mean, it's a contradiction, isn't it? Because one, it would have felt a lot weirder to see Ronaldo under Guardiola playing in this 
broadly tiki-taka system, but B, it also made much more sense. I mean, yeah, City lost Aguero. They don't want to use Jesus that much up front because he's doing very well out wide, so they needed a central forward. So it would have been a lot more interesting, I think, from our perspective to uh, to see how he would have fitted in there. But it wasn't to be, and it looks like City don't have any backup options, which I think is a bit of a surprise, but we're talking with, what, 12 hours of the transfer window to go? Mm. So who knows what will happen? Yeah, it's definitely worth flagging up the fact that while we talk about tactical fits and recruitment strategies, a key reason for the signing per that Laurie Whitwell, Adam Crafton, etc. piece uh, is denying him the opportunity to pull on Manchester City kit and 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 provide what they've been missing. So there's certainly some value there for United. Uh, overall, I would say probably more questions than answers at this point, but it's been brilliant to chew over all of the key topics surrounding Cristiano Ronaldo being reunited with United uh, over to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Cristiano to show us the way I think some brilliant writing from both of you on site at the moment um, great work for The Athletic Michael's thoughts on Messi and Ronaldo's tactical fit is worth a read and and Tom just contributing to articles left right and centre most of them seeing the light of the day some of them not but we're going to try and tackle that in due course uh, do sign up to The Athletic for an annual subscription if you don't have one already, theathletic.com forward slash tactics is where you can head to and you'll receive a 33% discount on your annual subscription. We'll be back again next week on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast feed if you have. Have a great week and we'll talk again next time. The Athletic.